0: You're listening to Comedy Central. June 4th, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition.
1: Is the author of the new memoir, Leaving the Witness. Amber Scora is joining us, everybody. It's gonna be a great conversation. <laughs> also on tonight's show, Rihanna changes her name, Jabuki Young-White learns the truth about socialism, and President Trump touches the queen. So let's catch up <laughs> on today's headlines. <laughs> first things first, happy Pride Month, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> happy Pride Month. I love Pride so much. It's so joyful and fun, although I will be honest, sometimes watching a Pride parade makes me very insecure. I mean, like some of these guys, when they're like, I'm out of the closet, I'm like, God damn, was there a gym in the closet? Why do you look so good? And I'm not being a hater. Like, if anything, I admire their restraints. Because if I looked like that, forget Pride Month, I'd be celebrating Pride all year round, yeah. <laughs> it could be snowing in January. I'd still be shirtless in the streets. People would be like, Trevor, your nipples are turning blue. I'd be like, that's Pride. <laughs> anyway, everywhere around the world, people are celebrating Pride Month, except for Russia, where they're saying everyone has to cut that shit out. The Rocket Man movie scene here was a very different version than when people in Russia got to see. So the movie about Elton John was heavily edited there. Scenes showing homosexual activity and drug use were deleted from the film shown in Russian theaters. Russian news agencies reported that the distribution company said the scenes were cut to conform with Russian law. Wait, let me get this straight. Russia wants a movie about Elton John, but without the gay parts? Do you also want Fast and Furious without the cars? Huh? because then you're just watching a movie about male pattern boldness. That's all it is, my friends. That's all it is. And I'll be honest, Russia. I don't think that this is about you hating parts of Rocket Man. I think this is about you hating parts of yourself. Yeah, think about it. Your president rides shirtless on a horse. You love partying in nightclubs, and your capital looks like a magical dildo factory. You're running <laughs> from yourselves, comrades. And if you're wondering, if you're wondering, uh, what would Rocket Man even look like without homosexuality and drugs? Well, we were able to get our hands on the Russian version and this is the entire movie.
0: My piano teacher thinks I'm good enough
1: for a scholarship at the Royal Academy of Music.
0: I love vaginas, the feeling inside. Yeah, not as good.
1: All right, moving on to some other news, Rihanna. She's recently made news for her successful fashion line. Forbes has just declared her the richest female musician in the world, and now she's dropped a new video that might be the most surprising release of her career.
2: Rihanna being unapologetic about how to pronounce her name. The pop star is once and for all settling the dispute on how to say it. She wants everyone to know it's Rihanna,
1: not Rihanna.
0: Hello British folk, it's Rihanna and I want to welcome you to Paris where I'm launching
1: the Rihanna? Her name is actually Rihanna? What? Um, this is like finding out that Beyonce's name is actually pronounced bae once, like what? Wait, like, and here's the thing, I don't mind if you change your name, but going from Rihanna to Rihanna is, is too small for my brain to remember. No, I feel like a name change has to be big, you know, like going from Puff Daddy to P. Diddy. I can, I can do that, you know? Or Prince to Symbol, right? Or R. Kelly to Correctional Inmate 4725. These are changes I can get behind. But Rihanna, no. You know what makes it even worse? Is that she wrote a whole song called, What's My Name? That would have been the perfect time to tell us your name. (laughs) She should have been like, Rihanna, that's my name. Rihanna, you're pronouncing it wrong. (laughs) And finally, it's graduation season, and a West Virginia high school principal is leaving his graduates with one final lesson, although it's not the lesson he wanted.
0: A high school principal is facing major embarrassment today. He gave a speech at his school's graduation ceremony, which one of his students thought she'd heard the speech before. From, of all people, actor Ashton Kutcher. Be smart, be thoughtful, be generous.
1: Inspiring words from a high school principal at graduation. But one graduate thought the speech sounded a little familiar.
0: It's really three things. For me, it's really three things. The first thing is about opportunity. The first thing is about opportunity. The second thing is about being sexy. The second thing is about being intriguing. And the third thing is about living life. And the third thing is about living life.
1: In conclusion, I love my wife Mila Kunas. Good night, everybody, good night. <laughs> I gotta give this principal credit though. At least he changed sexy to intriguing. I like that, yeah. Yeah, because even he knew, it would have been awkward if he was like, congratulations, class of 2019, stay bangable. (laughs) So uh, yeah, he stole Ashton Kutcher. Like, here's the thing about the story that I find intriguing, Uh, and by that I mean sexy. Uh, (laughs) He could have picked Martin Luther King Jr. or Nelson Mandela or Eleanor Roosevelt, but of all the speeches he stole, Ashton Kutcher? (laughs) from the 2013 Teens' Choice Awards? (laughs) Like, now it makes me wonder if he does this every year. Maybe he only steals from award shows. Like, maybe last year he was like, students, I'ma let you finish, but Bay once had the greatest video of all time. (laughs) All right, that's it for the headlines. Let's move on to our top story. (laughs) Today, was day two of President Trump's visits to the UK. And last night, the world's cutest white walker, Her Majesty the Queen, <laughs> hosted an official state dinner in honor of Trump's favorite thing, himself.
0: The president's first day ending in grand fashion with a dinner at Buckingham Palace, surrounded by royalty. The very best china, crystal, and gilded silver on display for the president and 170 other guests. The president praising the queen. A great- great woman. But possibly breaking royal
1: protocol when appearing to touch her back as she stood up. When he put his hand uh, on the back of Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth, well, you just don't touch the queen. That's right, you, you just don't touch the queen. You don't touch the queen. <laughs> These people need to calm the down, right? <laughs> Donald was just being nice. If Trump really wanted to break protocol, I don't think he'd be touching the queen's back. You guys need to calm down. <laughs> Plus, I think England takes it too far with the whole breaking protocol of the queen thing. Like, there's so many different rules. There's random rules about being around royalty. Like, for instance, did you guys know that you're not allowed to turn your back on the queen? Yeah, that's crazy. So everyone is just, like, backing up out of rules. <laughs> like, bumping into statues on the way out. It, just, it almost makes it seem like the queen is a grizzly bear or something. Just, <laughs> if you turn your back to her, she'll attack, all right? Also, don't leave any garbage around. She'll get into it. (laughs) Here's one of the crazier ones. There's a rule that asking the queen personal questions is strictly forbidden. Yeah. Which I bet they only put in place because otherwise someone might look at the queen and just be like, what exactly do you do here anyway? Like, why am I paying taxes for you to live in a palace? So look, man, I don't think Trump touching the queen was offensive. What was offensive was Trump's outfit for the big dinner. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) people, what's with this tuxedo? (laughs) How can a man have access to the nuclear codes but not a tailor, huh? (laughs) What is this? What what is that? Like, I knew Robert Pattinson was picked to be the new Batman, but now I guess we also know who's gonna play the penguin. What is that outfit? (laughs) And while Trump spent the evening being embraced by the royal family. There was, a, there was a whole different kind of party going on outside the next day.
0: This morning across London, large protests against a president who's deeply unpopular here. Thousands spilling into the streets of London. Some Brits are making clear their dislike of him. The giant side-by-side projection of his and former President Barack Obama's
1: UK approval ratings. Or the USS McCain hat.
0: We saw a return of the
1: so-called baby blimp Trump. That's a large version of Donald Trump, an inflatable one of him uh, in a diaper. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, <laughs> British protesters are no joke. Tens of thousands protesting Trump, and this was in the rain, which I know to them is a summer day, but that's not the point. <laughs> and you know what's really interesting about Britain is that even conservative British people don't like Trump. It's really strange. Like, I'm talking about like, pro-Brexit people who share many of his views. Like, they'll be like, there's too many bloody immigrants. It's time to shut down our borders. And will be like, so you guys like Trump? Oh God, no, not him, not him, no, no, no. <laughs> He's the worst immigrant of all. <laughs> now, obviously, British protesters are taking to the streets to make Trump feel unwelcome in the UK, but for Trump, protests are like Eric. He just pretends they don't exist. As you hold talks with the current prime minister, The leader of Her Majesty's opposition has been addressing a protest rally against your visit in Trafalgar Square. As far as the protests, I have to
3: tell you, even coming over today, there were thousands of people cheering, and then I heard that there were protests. I said, where are the protests? I don't see any protests. I did see a small protest today when I came,
1: very small. So a lot of it is fake news. Oh, man. Oh, man. Trump is adorable, man, come on. Cause like, he doesn't go with one excuse. He gives you all of them and you can pick which one you like best, huh? He's like, the people were cheering. I see no protest. I saw a small protest, but it was a fake protest and I didn't see it. I didn't see it. (laughs) Now, contrary, contrary to what the president said, the protests were not small, okay? It's estimated that tens of thousands of people marched in the streets, which is not small. Like, how does Trump always get this wrong? right, (laughs) first his inauguration and now this. It's almost like Trump is dyslexic, but just for crowd sizes (laughs) and also for words. (laughs) And here's the thing, people in the UK weren't just protesting because they hate Trump. They're also against a potential UK-US trade deal, which would bring American insurers into Britain's healthcare system, which they don't want. And so today, President Trump was asked about this in a press conference and uh, his answer wasn't exactly reassuring.
0: Do you agree with your ambassador that the entire economy needs to be on the table in a future trade talk, a trade deal, including the NHS? I think we're going to have a great trade deal, yes.
3: I think we're going to have a great and very comprehensive trade deal. With the
0: NHS, with the NHS, should the NHS be on the
3: table? I can't hear him.
0: It's the National Health Service. He says, should the National Health Service be on the table? Look,
3: I think everything with a trade deal is on the table. When, you, when you're dealing in trade, everything's on the table. So NHS or anything else, or a lot a lot more than that, but everything will be on the table, absolutely.
1: Okay, obviously Trump has no clue what they're talking about. <laughs> and he's doing a good job of hiding it. It's just like, look, everything's on the table. NHS, NHL, DTF, all on the table. <laughs> it's all there, all there, all on the table. I mean, Theresa May had to straight up give him the answer. In fact, now that she's leaving office, maybe that could be her next job. Yeah, just standing next to President Trump, wherever he goes, explaining shit to him, you know? Just be like, the the G7 is an alliance of international superpowers. Uh, That woman is the prime minister of New Zealand. Uh, That's a salad. Yes, It's it's made of vegetables. Vegetables? What are those? Uh, um, you know, Mac- McDonald's fries. Yeah, I love those. It's it's the before. So the mommy of the fries. Yes, it's the mommy. It's the mommy of the fries. Wow, I love it. We'll be right back. It's safe to say that socialism is having a moment in American politics right now. And that's freaking a lot of people out. So we sent our newest correspondent, Jabuki Young-White, to find out why.
2: For years, grumpy old white dudes have been telling us that socialism is total bullshit. Socialism leads to decline and ruin. This system crushes human souls. But as The Daily Show's new senior youth correspondent. (laughs) I know that millennials right now think socialism is totally on trend. I popped Somali and hit the street to find out why, even though the olds hate it, the kids love socialism. Uh, I think socialism is great. I think you should definitely help whoever you could at any situation. I f- with socialism just because I f- with anything that's helping black people out. Okay. So you're socialism curious.
0: Yeah, little well, I'm in college.
2: Right. Do you hate billionaires?
0: Low key. Yeah, you look at Jeff Bezos, he doesn't look human. I mean, I think the idea of socialism is on point. I mean, I don't really know
1: what socialism means, to be completely honest with you. Oh, it's
2: okay, we're all confused. If there were only someone we could talk to, someone with some deep experience on the subject. When I started doing this sort of piece on socialism, I knew that there was really only one politician who I could talk to about it. So I guess my question is, do you know AOC? Sure. And um, what's her availability like, if you could put us in touch, maybe. But,
0: you, you want to speak to her? Yeah,
2: maybe. Oh, well, I just figured, you know. <laughs> Seriously, you can't talk socialism in America without going to the OG, Senator Bernie Sanders.
0: I believe in a society where all people do well, not just a handful of billionaires.
2: Could he be the oldest millennial in America? You know that capitalism has given us a bunch of really dope things, right? iPhones, cars, hamburgers, the Avengers movies, the opioid crisis. So why are young people like myself very open to socialism?
0: Your generation, the younger generation, will in all likelihood have a lower standard of living than your parents. Your generation is leaving school more deeply in debt, having a much harder time finding affordable housing. The jobs that you get will pay less, so the idea of creating a society with more egalitarianism, so I think, is very appealing uh, to young people. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I
2: feel the burn. I see what you're talking about now. I admit it. Democratic socialism looks pretty fine on his Tinder profile, but are we gonna vibe when we meet
0: IRL? If you go to countries like Denmark or Sweden, you're gonna see very little poverty. You could leave your job. You could start a new business. You and your family still have health care as a right.
2: So I could quit The Daily Show and be fine? Absolutely. Well, it was great meeting with you. <laughs> <laughs> so under President Bernie, we'd be more European, like Denmark or Narnia. But try telling that to the haters. It's a terrible system. It's never worked. And in order for it to work at all, you've got to kill several million people to make it work. Carol Markowitz has written on why socialism needs to be canceled forever. Period.
3: Millennials have been raised in such prosperous times. They just think that, oh, we can make it even better with this insane plan to share the resources.
2: You know, I would love capitalism if it just weren't for all the sick people and all the poor people who can't afford healthcare. Is there a way for me to enjoy capitalism without those things?
3: If the solution is socialism, it's going to make us all equal in our poverty.
2: But if everyone is poor, isn't that kind of cool? Because we're all experiencing the same things. It'll be like, hey, like, the bread line was extra long today. And I'd be like, oh my god, yeah, it was. That guy's super observant and, like, funny.
3: Not so much, no. I was born in the Soviet Union. My great-grandfather was killed in a gulag because he owned a business, and socialists decided that was no longer legal.
2: That's truly horrific. Would Bernie be sending small
0: business owners to forced labor camps? Obviously, Soviet Union was an authoritarian society with no democratic rights. And I think if you know history, you'll know that democratic socialists stood up and fought against that. You can look about what existed in the Soviet Union or in Venezuela. That is not what I'm talking about at all.
2: So no one's going to the Gulag?
0: Well, except, no.
2: Uh, Okay. Fact check. The examples of failed socialism that critics use are not socialist democracies, but authoritarian states led by corrupt, ruthless, and paranoid dictators. But I do have one real problem with socialism. I like money. You know, TV's going kind of good for me right now, and I'm thinking of writing a successful book. Is socialism still
0: for me if I'm a millennial millionaire? I mean, it depends on what's your heart. If what you say in your life is, all I want to do is make as much money as I possibly can and screw everything else, I don't give a damn. Yeah, no, I don't think democratic socialism is your cup of tea. But if you have a decent heart and you say, look, I'm doing really well, but you know what? I also want to be a contributor to the well-being of society. So I'm going to pay my fair share of taxes. Wow, I could have my CBD-infused gluten-free cake and eat it
2: too. I'm liking the socialism thing more and more.
1: (laughs) Chabuki Young-White, everyone. We'll be right back. My guest tonight is a third generation Jehovah's Witness who takes us inside the faith in her memoir called, Leaving the Witness, Exiting a Religion and Finding a Life. Please welcome, Amber Scora. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Thank you, so happy to be here. You've written an intriguing book that takes us on a journey through your life. You know, it it starts off in a place that many people are familiar with, growing up in a very religious household as a Jehovah's Witness. Now, people may not be familiar with that part as the religion, but everyone's grown up, or many people have grown up religious. And you begin this journey that slowly changes over time. Let's start with that part before we really reveal where your journey takes you. What is it like to be a Jehovah's Witness? I mean, because we laugh from the outside. Um...
3: I know you do. <laughs> no, really. I've pe- heard the joke. Yes, people
1: are just... You know what I mean? The knocking on the <laughs> yeah. doors and the people... Like, the, like, the, like, as a Jehovah's Witness, did you know about that, or were you, were, were you completely oblivious?
3: I think as a Jehovah's Witness, every time... If in a movie there was a joke about a Jehovah's Witness or in a comedy show, we kind of liked it because it kind of... We would laugh along with it, and it was like, at least we were getting some attention. Right. Maybe it was a way of being in the world because we lived kind of cut off from the world in our own way. Interesting. But, you know, uh, Prince was a choseness. So there, there were mainstream people, and we were very excited when that happened. Oh, huh, that's an interesting
1: one. Yeah. There's, there's a part of the book that I, that I really enjoy. It's early on where you talk about how you would go to these houses and you would knock on people's doors. And some of these neighborhoods were really rich and fancy. Yeah. And some people would cuss you out. Some people would threaten you and tell you leave. Other people wouldn't answer. But there's a beautiful line in the book where you say, I would come back the next year, and I would be shocked that these sinners are still alive. And you like, that's not what my religion has told me. They should be dead by now. Mm-hmm. Was, that a, was that a weird moment for you, or did you just push it to the back of your head?
3: I mean, I guess it was... We had been taught from being very young that the world was going to end any day. Like, in, in our children's books, there was centerfold spreads, artists' conceptions of what Armageddon would look like. Right. And we were just little kids reading this, but there were pictures of, like, fire coming down from heaven, yes. wiping out all the people, basically all of you. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, it, I think it was something that was constantly on our mind, and that's why we lived the way that we did, because we thought the world was ending. I mean, why do you think we spent so much time preaching? It's, right. you know, it wasn't that much believe fun. Yeah, believe we believed, what, yeah. yeah. And there was a certain smugness, you know, like where we felt like we had the truth and we were sharing with people, and if they didn't listen, well, too bad.
1: <laughs> you, you truly believed in a way that I find admirable, because in the book you talk about how you left America and moved to China to preach and to be a missionary. And China, for those who don't know, is one of the countries where it's illegal to do that. You're not allowed to preach religion to people. You're not allowed to be a missionary. So that like takes a a real level of belief. Why China and why would you take that risk? Um,
3: I think that there was probably, I I mean, I had been raised as a Jehovah's Witness, so I did fully believe it. And I really did want to help people. My motives, you know, in my own mind were pure, that I thought I was saving people's, sorry, I thought I was saving people's lives. Right. but I think also there was probably some latent thing in me where I wanted an adventure, mm-hmm. because when you're a Jehovah's Witness, as most of you probably know, a lot of people don't open their doors yes, we or know. We know. <laughs> slam the doors, <laughs> <laughs> and so you know that gets a little tiresome after a while. So I think that that was part of it too. And you know, if you went to a country where no one had ever preached before, it feels like fresh territory. It's like you got new blood.
1: <laughs> right. It, it, it's it's an interesting world that you take us into. What, what, what's really beautiful, though, is when you start witnessing the change is because you go out to be a missionary to these people out there to tell them about you, uh, being a Jehovah's Witness. And in a strange way, it's almost like they start converting you because you meet people who tell you about the world. You pe- meet people who show you a different perspective. And that started to shift your views on religion. In what way?
3: Yeah, that's, a, <clears throat> that's exactly what happened in that um, I think when I was at home, well, first of all, I didn't get that far. I didn't really... You know come to the point where someone would sit down and listen to me and you know listen to me go through our books and study right. with them in my hometown but in china more people would would listen to what i had to say and i think being in a different language and a different culture it kind of really disoriented me and even learning chinese i learned mandarin um learning that language it's not just like a, a language where you can just translate from english you really have to kind of excavate your mind and change the way you think in order to speak it But also, there was the strange side effect of being in this country where, as we all know, there's not a lot of freedom. But for a Jehovah's Witness in China, there was a lot of freedom because the organization anywhere else in the world is very structured and quite insular. And you have a lot of meetings and preaching that you do. And in China, because the work is done secretly under, you know, it's under ban there. uh, Suddenly, I just had a, a lot more freedom and time on my own. And also the opportunity to meet people and talk more deeply with them. Right. People who weren't Jehovah's Witnesses.
1: Honestly, I, I, I don't pass judgment because, as I say, many of us have grown up extremely religiously. And those levels of religion are defined across religions. You know, um, some people would label um, Jehovah's Witnesses a cult. They would say it's, it's, it's completely a cult. You speak to that in the book. Others would argue that any religion can become a cult depending on how you practice it. Um, when you look at your life now, you left the religion... And one of the hardest parts of leaving the religion was how you were cut off from your family and your society. It feels like that in of itself it lends itself more to being culty than, than other mainstream religions in a way. Like, what was that like for you?
3: Yeah, I think um, there's a scene in the book where one of the characters tells me I'm in a cult, and I react very strongly. I felt really angry, and I was adamant that that wasn't true. Right? Does anyone who's in a cult ever know they're in a cult? That's you know, yeah. I don't think I don't think they do.
1: Except <clears throat> the leader, hopefully.
3: Yeah. Maybe. yeah. <laughs> um, but it was when I started to have doubts and questions and started to leave. I think when you try to leave a group and then strange things start happening, that can be when it starts to occur to you that maybe you might have been
1: right. in a cult. You might be in a cult when. Yeah. So,
3: sort of, for example, as you said, if you're, you know, it wasn't like I was ranting and raving or, or about it. I wasn't, like, in the church being like, this is wrong. But I, I mentioned a couple things, maybe some doubts that I had had. And very quickly, my community just shed me as a person. And that's quite a big thing for people who have been taught to build their life around uh-huh, the community. Uh-huh. So that felt strange. And then I think the further, you know, I got one step away after that happened. And the further I got away from it, I would start to see other things, examine other things, like the different beliefs that they have. And right, right whether they cause harm, I think that's a good gauge, whether a group, I mean, religions can do, be for a cause for good, but they can also, on the flip side, can yes. be a cause for harm. Right. So for example, um, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in taking blood transfusions, even if it saves your life, and so that's caused thousands of deaths. So that's, when I started to think about that more, um, with a little bit of distance, it started to me feel like, it's not that much different than Kool-Aid, drinking Kool-Aid. Right. People are dying unnecessarily. <laughs> So there's little signs along the way that start to make me feel that it was a group that was not really a positive, um, it didn't have a really positive effect
1: right. on a lot of people. When we look at this, this journey, you, you, are, you are traveling into a religion, through a religion, and then out of the religion. The one question I always have for people is, what do you then replace that with in your life? Because I mean, religion is such a big part of your world if yeah. you are deeply religious. Where have you turned to since then? I mean, you talk in the book about suffering, tragic loss. You know, you lost a child. Yeah. Many people would lean on religion in those moments. What have you now turned to in your life to to replace that that stability?
3: Yeah, I think that when we go through difficult times or tragedies, the impulse, there's some instinct in us as humans is to look outward, to try and look for something to absolve or like to, to heal the pain. And when you no longer believe, I, for me, it, it wasn't a choice to believe anymore. Once I believed and then kind of like just scales fell from my eyes, to use a biblical term, and then didn't, it wasn't possible for me to just get return and believe something again. Right. So I think the, the big thing that comes to mind is that when I, had, when I was in the religion, I felt like I had the answers to every question, like anything. Why do we die? Why is there suffering? Uh, and then that felt really meaningful, like uh-huh. my life had meaning. But when you, when you leave the religion and you realize that those answers weren't true, well, if an answer isn't true, then it's not meaningful. So basically, when you have some future hope that you no longer believe in, what do you have? You don't have a, you know, a fictional future in front of you. You have what's in front of you now. And for me, just... Being present in the world and knowing that now my life is finite, it's not going to go on forever. It's kind of made me see the world as a more like the beauty in the world. Right. And even in not having all the answers, I think there's a lot of magic. Um, There's a lot of mystery that we can't know right now. But that can be something that's really meaningful and interesting um, to consider. Right. And as far as when my, my son died, the thing with, you know, when we do look at the world, there's also pain. There's no denying that. But even, I think, that the um, pain that, of course, I carry with me due to the loss of my son, um, the the flip side of it, of that grief, is the depth of the love that I had for him. And so, to me, I think, when I consider that love of the mother and the child, it really is a transcendent Uh love. And I experienced that love without religion. So, to me, I think that life just has meaning inherently. It's just that I've treated in maybe the future for the now.
1: It's a beautiful journey, and it's a really powerful book with some wonderful insights. Thank you so much for being Thank on the you. show. That's wonderful great. having you here. <laughs> Leaving the Witness is available now. And a score, everybody. Thank you so much.